This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, the former president's leading challenger in a state that likes challengers. Looking to set the stage for an upset, we are live in New Hampshire. Also tonight, a Trump court victory keeping him on Michigan's primary ballot. But will the same be true in November? And we have breaking news on a similar case, a Trump defeat in Colorado. Later, the remarkable story of how two men's fishing day ended with them saving another man's life, a man trapped and lost to the world for nearly a week inside a wrecked truck with deadly weather closing in. Good evening, everyone. John Berman here in for Anderson. What Christmas break? That's what the Republican presidential candidates must be asking tonight. There is virtually no time left before the first contests. And happening now, live pictures of former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley. She is in the middle of an event in New Hampshire. She's armed with the governor's endorsement there, a fresh infusion of cash, and possibly, she hopes at least, one of the most precious commodities in politics, momentum. Now, it is a relative term with Donald Trump looming over everything, but momentum nonetheless, especially with the New York Times all but writing a campaign obituary for Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, including quotes from advisors making references to hospice care, just wanting to make the patient comfortable. The question for Haley tonight in the next few weeks, can she make the momentum not just relative, but real? CNN's Eva McKenna joins us now from that Haley event in Berlin, New Hampshire. Now, Eva, what is Governor Haley talking about tonight? Well, John, first and foremost, she thanked folks for sticking around. She was a bit delayed tonight uh, due to the foggy weather in this state. She emphasized to her supporters here that the North Country in New Hampshire, here in northern New Hampshire, uh, very important to her in, in her campaign. She then launched into talking about her time as governor of South Carolina, talking about how she has the necessary executive leadership experience to be president. She talked about her time uh, at the U.N. But really central to her campaign is that she is part of this new generation of conservative leadership and that not only can she confront Trump in this primary, that she can go on to beat President Biden in a general election. You mentioned that Chris Sununu endorsement. That is really pivotal here. The, the governor, extremely popular. He is not with her this evening, but he is going to be with her during a slew of stops in the state tomorrow. Yeah, so important for Nikki Haley is the New Hampshire primary. Important, too, if not central, if not New Hampshire or bust for New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. What's he been saying, Eva, about calls for him to drop out? Yeah, uh, John, out just this evening, a new ad from Chris Christie where he is telling folks that he is not going to drop out of this race. I think it's really telling that he felt the need in a direct-to-camera ad uh, to address these concerns. But that really speaks to the anxieties among some Republicans to coalesce around a single Trump alternative. But in true Christie fashion, uh, you know his style well. He's saying he's not going anywhere. He is uh, going the distance here. I don't know if I don't know if uh, oh, okay, I think Haley's a little bit mad at us right now that we're being a little bit too loud. So I'm going to wrap up here, John. But yes, Christie says he's not going to go anywhere. He's going to be campaigning aggressively uh, in this state as well this week. Even McCann whispering at a Nikki Haley event in Berlin, New Hampshire. We'll let you get back to covering that event quietly. Thanks so much, Eva. We do appreciate it.
We'll get back to Republican politics in just a minute. In the meantime, President and Mrs. Biden left Washington today for the Virgin Islands, their last vacation before their campaign really gets going after New Year's. And while they're gone, senators who've also left town will be meeting virtually, trying to hammer out new border legislation. I want you to take a look at this. We have pictures today from Eagle Pass, Texas. This is part of a border patrol sector where the number of migrants apprehended it is down somewhat, but still running in the thousands per day. Both Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas traveled to Mexico City today to try to get more help from their Mexican counterparts, including trying to move migrants south from border areas. CNN's Kevin Liptak following President Biden is in St. Croix for us tonight. Kevin, why don't you give us a sense of what happened in the meetings in Mexico City today? Yeah, and we do know that these officials entered these talks with a set of very specific asks for the Mexican government as they look to kind of pull every lever that they possibly can to curb the flow of migrants at the southern border. One of them was trying to move these migrants further south in an effort to kind of decongest the U.S. southern border. Another step that they were looking for is trying to have better control over the railways in Mexico. These are the lines that migrants take from Central and South America through Mexico to the U.S. southern border. And then the third thing was trying to come up with some incentives like visas that would allow some of these uh, migrants to remain in Mexico before crossing into the United States. And I think when you look at the makeup of this delegation, these are cabinet level officials, Secretary of State Blinken, the Homeland Security Secretary. It really does go to show just how urgently the Biden administration is looking for some solutions to this problem. They do feel that there is more and there can be more to be done on the diplomatic front. And certainly President Biden States are highly aware that this will be a central issue in next year's presidential election, John. Kevin, what has the Mexican president been saying about all of this? Yeah, and this is so interesting because when you talk to Biden administration officials, they do feel like they have a good partner in President Lopez Obrador. There have been some differences with Biden, but on this issue, they do feel like they have an understanding. But it was interesting before Blinken arrived in Mexico City, the Mexican president came out and said that the real thing that could help was more American assistance to Latin America instead of, as he put it, putting up barriers, barbed wire fences, or thinking about building walls. And the other interesting thing that I thought that he said was he made a reference to the next year's election. He said that the interest in this immigration issue will intensify. And I think that shows you, John, he understands he has some leverage here with President Biden, who is dealing with both the left and the right as he is kind of in a squeeze on this most intractable issue in American politics. I think when you talk to both sides, there is a general agreement that the only way that these scenes of the border are going to be resolved is if Congress actually changes the rules. What President Biden wants to do in the coming years is apply pressure on Republicans to get some of those rules changed. Of course, he is under pressure from progressives as well who worry about what he might agree to, whether some of those rule changes could amount to the most restrictive policies we saw under President Trump. But certainly it's an issue that's not going away anytime soon. John. Kevin Liptak in St. Croix. Kevin, keep us posted. Thank you very much. In a moment, more on the campaign that awaits the president, including the age factor. We're going to get to that in a most unusual way. First, though, more on the Republican primary, where the first votes are now less than three weeks away. With us now, Axios senior contributor Margaret Taleb, also from the right and left, respectively. CNN senior political commentator Scott Jennings and Democratic strategist James Carville, co-host of the Politics War Room podcast. And Margaret, I want to start with you. We were looking at Nikki Haley at an event in Berlin, New Hampshire. And over the last few months, this has been a battle to be the Trump alternative. And that battle over the last weeks and months has been really a two-person race between Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley. 
To what extent is it still a two-person race to be the Trump alternative, or has it turned into just Haley or bust? Well, right now it's a three-person race, and it's a race to see whether Nikki Haley can eclipse Ron DeSantis and move him out of the way, and then whether she can come close enough to Trump uh, uh, perform above expectations in a way that makes a difference and changes the fundamental dynamics of what all the polling tells us that this race is. And, you know, John, when you look at Iowa, of course, that'll be the first contest. Those are um, caucuses, so they're a little bit different, and you can persuade right up until the end um, in a much more direct fashion. But even so, uh, history certainly suggests that it's all but impossible to stop Trump in, in Iowa. He's been uh, 30 points or more ahead in the polling, but Nikki Haley has been very close to catching Ron DeSantis. Um, uh, there's no history that shows um, that a candidate who's 30 points ahead can then go on to lose the Iowa caucuses. New Hampshire is different. New Hampshire has been this kind of second chance state. Um, think about Bill Clinton. He uh, uh, wore that mantle of the comeback kid after actually coming in second in New Hampshire, but it, that second place finish really uh, surpassed expectations for him and gave him new life and also a weaker than expected showing in New Hampshire. Uh, it, you got to go back some decades, but has really impacted um, perceived uh, presumptive nominees or front runners, you know, in the case of Harry Truman and Lyndon Johnson. I know this seems like ancient history, but uh, very poor showings. Uh, New Hampshire showed they were in trouble. And Donald Trump did so well in New Hampshire uh, in the last two primary contests, again, with GOP primary voters, that a weaker showing in New Hampshire and a strong showing by Nikki Haley may be the only hope she has, but is a strategy for worth her pursuing right now. And that's what you see her doing. James Carville, I have to ask you, I, I see the little smirk on your face right there. You might remember 1992 when Bill Clinton finished second to Paul Songus favorite son of Lowell, Massachusetts, in the New Hampshire primary. And you said, others said it made Bill Clinton the comeback kid. Can New Hampshire do that for anyone in the Republican race this time? You know, the New Hampshire primary, first of all, think about it. I get tired and cold 32 years later. The fatigue and freezing was a dominant emotion I went through. You have to remember, New Hampshire is not that relevant. Why do I say that? It's an open primary. Independents can vote. It produces an entirely different result than when only Republicans can vote. You need to look at the 2000 primaries with uh, then Governor Bush and Senator McCain. So Nikki Haley is going to have her best night in New Hampshire. Once she gets to South Carolina, it's closed. Only Republicans can vote. I've, I've, Scott would notice better than I do. I think Michigan is open. She'll do better in open primaries and closed primaries, but you can't win. I don't think you can win that nomination without doing really well in closed primaries, but I would defer to Scott's opinion on that. Scott? Yeah, I think he's exactly right. I mean, at this point, Haley and Christie in New Hampshire are begging independents and Democrats to cross over into the Republican primary. Obviously, you can't do that in Iowa. You can't do that in a lot of states. Some are open, but not very many. And so I think uh, Mr. Carville is absolutely... Correct. And I think if you level set here, Trump's sitting at 60 percent plus nationally in the polling averages. He looks like he's romping in Iowa. If he does and Ron DeSantis has a poor night in Iowa, what does he do? He might drop out. Well, if he does, those people, some of them are going to Donald Trump. So even consolidation from the field coming out of Iowa might actually help Trump, even in New Hampshire, uh, where he's facing down 
Nikki Haley. And of course, when they head on to Nevada, Trump's very strong there and they go to South Carolina. You know, Nikki Haley will have some choices to make at that point about facing down Donald Trump in her home state where he is dominant in the polling. One thing I would say, if somebody totally beats expectations, let's say Ron DeSantis gets within a five points in Iowa, he will jump over expectations. Or if Haley beats DeSantis in Iowa, or if Haley gets close to Trump or beats Trump in New Hampshire, that can create almost immediate shifts in the polling moving forward. But if Trump were to win by significant margins in the first two states, I think this thing is uh, academic at that point. Scott, since you brought it up, let me ask you, you brought up Ron DeSantis, and I think a lot of jaws are still on the floor after the New York Times piece over the weekend, which had quotes from advisors talking about hospice care with Ron DeSantis, you know, keeping the patient comfortable in these last few days. You talk about him beating expectations, but what number do you think in Iowa might force him from the race, might get him to quit before even New Hampshire? Well, given Trump's polling lead, I would think if someone got within single digits of Trump, that would be a pretty big night. I mean, that would be beating expectations uh, pretty significantly. Uh, if Donald Trump wins by double digits, that, that's a big night for him. And, and as was suggested by Margaret, he's a so far ahead in Iowa, the history would tell us that nobody's ever lost at this point, uh, being this far ahead in the polling. I mean, it's possible Donald Trump could score the biggest competitive Iowa caucus victory ever in the Republican Party's history uh, coming up in January. That's going to be a huge news night for him and provide him with uh, some momentum coming out of it. But for DeSantis, it's always been Iowa or bust. That's where the voters are most likely to buy into his kind of politics, at least in the early states. That's where they've invested a ton in the ground game, and they think they're well organized. So for him, Keep the ball bouncing. Single digits is where I'm at on it. And Margaret, quickly, if Trump manages to win both Iowa and New Hampshire, is that it? Game over? I mean, it's hard to see how the momentum breaks for any other candidate were that the case. And uh, to, to Scott and James's points earlier, uh, New Hampshire is the, the best chance to kind of um, – break conventional wisdom for uh, for a breakthrough candidate. Uh, if if someone like a Nikki Haley couldn't do it there, it's hard to see how it could happen. And, and James, Eva McKen was talking about Chris Christie, this new, and I guess it's a seven-figure ad buy, which is hard to believe in New Hampshire, where he's basically just saying he's mad that people are asking him to drop out. Let's take a quick look at that. Some people say I should drop out of this race. Really? I'm the only one saying Donald Trump is a liar. What do you think of that, James? Well, I, I know uh, Governor Christie, you don't get elected Republican governor in New Jersey two times without having some, some kind of street smarts. Uh, I think he just hates Trump. I think as long as he can get a microphone and attack him, I, I think this is a cathartic advice. I, I think he views this as some level of political hygiene as much as him running for president. But I'm putting thoughts in another person's mind. But I, but I think I'm pretty close to the bullseye here. He, he, he's going to chase this guy around as long as he can, I think. Since you talked about street smart, James, I want to shift gears to the Democratic side here. And Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman did an interview with Politico where he talked about you. He said that you need to shut the blank up. Uh, and what he's talking about is you've been warning Democrats about President Biden's chances for reelection. Fetterman went on to say, I don't know why he, you, believes it's helpful to say these kinds of things about an incredibly difficult circumstance with an incredibly strong and decent and excellent president. And I think he also went on to say, question how relevant you've been since grunge. Those were his exact words there. So what's your reaction to Senator Fetterman? 
I think the guy is just trying to be relevant. I mean, Josh Shapiro drug him across the finish line, and I don't, I don't take much offense to it. I would remind him the law of the swamp is that gnats do not fool with cottonmouths. But if he, if he wants to, to get on TV by saying something about me, he ought to tell all these Democrats that asked me to come in and campaign for him and send out fundraising appeals. To, to I'll be glad if he has a staff call me. I'll give him the names, and he can send out the the fundraising appeals instead of me and see how well he does. <laughs> what about the substance of what he what? said? Well, I'm, I'll say the polls are not very good for, for President Biden. It's like saying it's raining outside. If it's raining, it's raining. I, what, am, what does he expect me to do, to go on and say that we built an insurmountable lead? I, I, again, I, I, don't, I, I just think the guy is trying to get his name in the paper, and it, that's okay. I, I can deal with that, too. It's not a... It's not a major thing, but I think that's what he's up to. But I, I don't know what he'd have me do. Go go on this program and lie to you and tell you that we're 10 points up when we're not. I, I don't quite understand what way he's coming from. But if he wants to explain himself further, let him go ahead and explain himself further. Anything that President Biden and the Biden campaign has done recently that's made you change their mind about their prospects? Well, I mean, the economic numbers continue to get better. They, 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 Michigan consumer confidence numbers up. I, I just, but I don't know if, if President Biden's age he just has an opaque factor that people are not going to look beyond that. But right now, the numbers are not very impressive. I'm sorry. They're just not. I don't know what else I can say about them. Uh, I guess the hope is, is that Trump gets in a legal morass and the economy keeps the momentum and somehow or another we, we pull this out. But as of right now, the, the polling has not been impressive for the last year, at least. It's just not. Right. James Carville, thank you very much. Margaret Tolliff, Scott Jennings, thanks to both of you as well. You know, the point that James was making right there, some new polling that breaks down President Biden's job approval by age group. It's from NPR, PBS and Marist College, and it shows that President Biden is weakest among Gen Xers. That's Americans born between 1965 and 1980, just 34 percent job approval with them. He does best 50 percent approval with baby boomers and nearly as well with the oldest demographic born prior to or just after the Second World War. Now, our Gary Tuckman today spoke with members of that group. Some are as old as the president. Some are older. Some are way older. And the question he asked, Gary, did was about age. About 1,300 people live in Surf City, New Jersey, on the Jersey Shore. And most everyone knows Francis Hodgins. I'm the mayor. The 91-year-old mayor who just won re-election says he feels as sharp and competent as he ever has as Surf City's leader. But do you think Joe Biden is mentally competent enough to serve another term? No. We spend time with the Republican mayor and six other residents who range in ages from 72 to 100. All are Republicans except this one Democrat. But opinions do vary about Joe Biden. I've seen him on TV where he's talking and all of a sudden he just wanders off into something else or just skips it. Bill Willem is 100 years old and agrees with his mayor. He's done an awful lot of things in public, made an awful lot of mistakes and and it's been brought in the news as often. Uh, no, I don't think the man is capable of, of doing the job. But Suzanne Gilbert feels differently. She's the same age as the president. Is he mentally capable of another term in the White House? Yes. And why do you think that? 
because I'm 81 and I think I am. <laughs> Democrat Stanley Lerman is 82 and is very comfortable with Joe Biden's competency. I think he has a world of experience. He's sat behind the Obama. He's been around for a long time and he knows how to pick a staff. Barbara Russell is 89 and feels Joe Biden is too old to be president again. But there's also this. Do you think Donald Trump is too old to be president? Yes. And tell me why. Because I think he has issues, health issues and mental health issues that preclude him. Barbara's husband Jim is 92 and a surf city councilman for about two decades. Regarding President Biden. He should realize the fact that he's, you know, he's, I wouldn't say losing it, but he, I don't think he has the capabilities to do the job that the president requires. Do you feel the same way about Donald Trump? Very much so. But the youngest senior in our group, 72-year-old John Franzoni, disagrees with those Trump sentiments. I think the guy's near the top of his game, regardless of his age. Republicans dominate in Surf City. But 100 miles north in New York City, that's certainly not the case. Pat still is 78. Do you think Joe Biden might be too old for a second term because of cognition issues? I certainly don't think he, that cognition is a problem for Joe Biden. It's a problem for Donald Trump. Evan Janovic is 89. His experience surpasses anybody else's that even is considering running for president. But this Democrat, 87-year-old Fran Lifson, has a different take on Joe Biden. I think at some point you just, you, you don't think as clearly and you don't speak as clearly and you're not as sharp as you were. I know it with myself, although I'm older than he. <laughs> Back in Surf City, we ask about presidential candidate Nikki Haley's proposal to have mandatory mental competency tests for politicians over 75. 100-year-old Bill Williams' opinion was shared by many we talked with. It wouldn't be a bad idea at any, any age, really. Honestly. I mean, from judging from what we're getting anymore. <laughs> And very young Gary Tuckman is here with me now tonight, Gary. So the 91-year-old mayor who thinks that President Biden is too old, the 91-year-old mayor, how long does he plan to stay in office? Well, firstly, I will tell you, he was just reelected to another term, another four-year term, gets sworn in next week. He, he's been mayor, city councilman, and other jobs within the city government now for 60 years, since 1963. So when I asked him what his plans are in the future, the next mayoral election four years from now, when he's 95 years old, he told me, if I feel good, no reason why I won't run again. Okay, so it seems to be a selective issue for him, <laughs> the whole age thing. Gary Tuckman, that was fun. Thank you so much. Next, Michigan's top election official on today's court ruling that says, unlike in Colorado, the former president's name stays on the 2024 primary ballot. And speaking of Colorado, we have some breaking news just minutes ago on that. And later, a CNN investigation investigates dog fighting which may be forgotten, but is sadly very far from gone. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing, 
This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... Lately, we have been paying attention to a very different virus, bird flu, which is caused by the H5N1 virus. If you start to hear that it's circulating in pigs, that would be a concern. That means I would go from sleeping with one eye open to one and a half eyes open. Yeah, that would make me very concerned. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. No holiday this week in the almost countless civil, criminal, and constitutional cases involving the former president. In breaking news to prove it, Colorado's Republican primary just moments ago asked the Supreme Court to overturn the state Supreme Court ruling that removed Trump from the ballot. It caps a day, which also included Michigan Supreme Court keeping Trump on the ballot there and a new filing by special counsel Jack Smith. Seen as Jessica Snyder joins us now with much more on all of this. First, tell us about what the Colorado Republican Party just did, this appeal. Yeah, John, so the Colorado GOP, they're a party in this case, so they say they've just appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. We do expect Donald Trump's legal team to follow suit soon, probably in the coming days. But what this filing guarantees in the short term is it guarantees that Donald Trump's name will, in fact, be on the primary ballot in Colorado. Because remember, the state Supreme Court here ruled that he should be taken off the ballot for engaging in insurrection, but they paused their decision, their ruling, to give time to the U.S. Supreme Court to consider whether to hear this case. The, the Supreme Court will likely hear this case, but since primary ballots have to be certified January 5th, next Friday, this appeal basically guarantees that the ballots will have to be printed with Trump's name on it. So now, John, the question becomes, you know, does the Supreme Court hear this case? They likely will because of this major constitutional question. But how quickly also will they hear the case? And when they do hear the case, you know, will they end up dodging the ultimate issue here about how to interpret the 14th Amendment, you know, some are saying they might decide on really a procedural issue, something like the Michigan Supreme Court did, just saying that maybe this isn't for the courts to decide and is instead a political question. So a lot still hangs in the balance when it comes to the 14th Amendment and Trump on the ballot. Yeah, we'll get to that constitutional issue in just a second with the Michigan Secretary of State. In the meantime, yeah. Special Counsel Jack Smith has filed a motion seeking to block Donald Trump from making certain comments in court in his upcoming election subversion trial. What's in that filing? Yeah, Jack Smith and his team really trying to get ahead of what seems to be Trump's penchant for making comments about any court case that he's involved with. So what they're asking the court to do is to prohibit Donald Trump from saying a number of things that they believe could prejudice the jury once they go to trial. That includes they want to bar Trump's you know, repeated claims that the Biden administration somehow directed this case against him for political reasons. Jack Smith and his team are putting this into the filing. They're saying the court should not permit the defendant to 
to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. And really, John, this filing from Jack Smith's team is it's also notable because all of the proceedings right now, they're on hold, they're on pause while the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals considers this immunity argument. They'll hear the case on January 9th. But despite it being on pause, Smith's team is continuing to file with the lower court, the trial court, um, because Jack Smith's team is trying to preserve that March 4th trial start date. It looks like they probably won't start on March 4th, but Jack Smith is doing all he can, he and his team can, to keep that on track. And Jessica, quickly, we did mention the Michigan case. The Supreme Court there made a decision to keep Donald Trump on the state's Republican primary ballot. What exactly did the court take into account and how did it differ from the Colorado case? Yeah, the Michigan decision, it really wasn't as monumental as the Colorado Supreme Court case, because in Colorado, the justices there really weighed in on the meat of the issue, you know, the 14th Amendment, what it means, why it excludes Trump from the ballot in their view. Instead, what the Michigan Supreme Court did today, they wrote a really short order, and they said that they stood by what the lower courts had done in dismissing the case. They concluded that this was really just a political question about whether the 14th Amendment applied to Trump. It should be decided by political bodies, by Congress. And, you know, as I mentioned before, that's a lot of what legal scholars are saying as what the U.S. Supreme Court actually might do. They might not rule on the ultimate issue here. They might just dismiss this, saying it isn't the job for the courts to decide if Trump violated this 14th Amendment. Instead, it's a political decision. So that's what we saw from the Michigan Supreme Court. But we're seeing all these courts weigh in. So the U.S. Supreme Court will likely have to weigh in before the general election here. Jessica Snyder, no holiday for you. A very busy night. Thank you so much for all of that. Thanks, John. With us now, Michigan's top election official, Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. Secretary Benson, I want to ask you your reaction to this decision by the Michigan Supreme Court today. Well, thanks for having me. And I actually agreed with the decision. It's what I've said for months now. The authority uh, of my office is limited in this moment to ensuring that individuals who are generally advocated by the national news media, media to be potential presidential candidates are on the ballot. That's what our state law says. And ultimately, this is coming down to not just a question on the merits of whether or not Donald Trump is qualified under the Constitution to serve, but also who should decide and when should that decision be made? Is the primary too soon? Should it be if and when he's nominated in the general election? So all of those are squarely in the purview of the courts to decide and ultimately, I believe, will be decided by the U.S. Supreme Court. Okay, so if the Supreme Court does weigh in here, and you've written, I think, basically that you hope that they do, what do you want them to answer? What questions do you want them to answer specifically with regards to the 14th Amendment and the issue of insurrection? I want them to deliver a substantive decision on the merits sooner rather than later that clearly sets the expectation as to whether or not under the 14th Amendment, Donald Trump is qualified to serve as president again. I don't want them to kick this to Congress. I don't want them to kick this down the line because voters need clarity, election officials and administrators need clarity, and the Republican Party needs clarity as we move forward into this election year. That will depend if they were to do what you ask on whether or not the Supreme Court thinks that Donald Trump engaged in or aided those who engaged in insurrection. And you well know that some critics of the Colorado Supreme Court decision do note that Donald Trump has never been explicitly charged with insurrection as part of these criminal cases. How much does that matter? 
Yeah, and like I say this, not as just as the chief election officer of the state of Michigan, but as the former dean of a law school and election law professor, and someone who was a witness in Michigan to the actual attempts to subvert the will of the voters in our state and in other battleground states. All of that said, I recognize that there are a lot of nuances and facts yet to be determined in how we define, legally define insurrection and aiding and abetting, and the facts of Trump's involvement in all those things. When you have that much ambiguity, the, the US Supreme Court's job is to resolve that for the country. So that's the direction we are headed in. That's where we should be headed. And what we need the U.S. Supreme Court to do is to answer those questions, to do their jobs in that regard, so that all of us can have appropriate clarity and proceed appropriately. So in opinion, in the Michigan case, kind of left the door open, it really dealt with the primary, right? It left the door open to future legal action if he becomes the Republican nominee for the general election ballot. Do you expect another suit in the general election if Trump is the nominee? I do. I mean, look, if the U.S. Supreme Court does not make a decision on the merits prior to the general uh, the nomination uh, process in the summer, if they do not make a decision on the merits by then, then we should expect, as uh, Justice Welch's dissenting opinion suggests, that litigants will bring forth another action if Donald Trump receives his party's nomination or runs as an independent candidate. And that's why, to me, it's all the more important that the Supreme Court settle this sooner rather than later so that we don't see another round of this uncertainty as we go into the fall's general election. Voters saying anything about this? Do you hear from them at all? Yes, uh, voters hold very strong opinions on both sides on this. And uh, in the months since this has been injected into our conversation and these legal theories have been weighed, our uh, our office has received threats on both sides, frankly, from people who feel very strongly either Donald Trump should be or should not be on the ballot. All along, I've just tried to be clear that my job as the referee in this process is to say the proper determining determining body under this state law in Michigan is our Supreme Court. And that's what all the courts have also affirmed. So, you know, while as a, as an elected official, you always want to be able to serve and provide clarity for citizens here, our clarity comes from the law. And it does mean we move forward, probably making everyone upset. But ultimately, I hope as voters, citizens take seriously their role in this 2024 election cycle to channel their opinions about this and other matters into the ballot box and how they vote. Well, you know, no one cheers for the referee, which is, I'm sure you know at this point. <laughs> Michigan yep. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, thank you very much for being with us. Thanks for having me. All right, coming up, a CNN investigation into the underground world of dogfighting, how a vicious, disturbing practice thought to be in decline is now thriving. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We have a CNN investigation into the brutal, bloody practice of dogfighting. It was thought to have been on the ebb after it became a federal felony back in 2007. It's back now, in the shadows, but growing thanks to the Internet, where hundreds of thousands of dollars may change hands in a single match. Our Isabel Rosales rode along with officials as they made one of their biggest single-day busts ever. We do want to warn you, some of the images of the dogs you're about to see, they are disturbing. It's pitch black outside a South Carolina church. At the ready, 
are dozens of armed law enforcement officers. Today, they're seizing fighting dogs. Behind them? I'm definitely anxious. I'm always anxious to see the dogs. We ride along with the federal prosecutor overseeing the criminal case. It's heartbreaking. I get very emotional. Emotional because of how vicious dogfighting is, made all the more clear in court documents. Dogs who have been fought may have scars, puncture wounds, swollen faces, or mangled ears. In one case, prosecutors say an owner killed his dog by hanging it. And authorities found this contraption made from jumper cables, allegedly used to electrocute dogs, inside the home of a Pentagon employee. <laughs> This CNN exclusive video, evidence from a close case, shows two dogs getting ready to fight. The illegal sport has spiked federal interest. Last year, officials seized roughly 400 dogs from suspected fighting rings, more than in any other year since at least 2007, according to a CNN review of civil forfeitures. Jane Taylor tells me she was a lifelong narcotics prosecutor until she first saw the injuries on fighting dogs. I had a case where um, we had a wiretap and we were listening to the calls of the individuals involved in drugs and we started hearing a lot of conversations about dogs and dog fighting. We arrive at the first of five homes. What sort of things are you on the lookout for when you enter a property? I'm looking at the conditions of the dogs themselves. I'm looking for any sort of scarring, any fresh wounds. And then I'm also looking for what I'll call dog fighting paraphernalia. Like these treadmills to make the dogs stronger and faster. And something called spring poles, where the dogs are used to jump up and they latch on it so as to strengthen their jaws. Experts say dogs are often tied down with heavy chains and weighted collars to increase their strength. Some dog fighters inject their animals with drugs or vitamins to increase aggression. And before a big fight, some fighting dogs are starved to keep them in their weight class like a boxer. Tucked away in this wooded area, federal agents find the first of roughly 120 pit bulls that would be seized in what will turn out to be South Carolina's second largest single day seizure of fighting dogs ever, say investigators. They're photographed and loaded into trailers to get medical care and shelter. When we go onto a property, they'll wag their tail because they haven't had any interaction, I mean, friendly interaction. Major Frank O'Neill with the South Carolina State Law Enforcement Division. They've been abused either by the owner and a, a fighting dog. It's just, it breaks your heart. People are making a lot of money off of this. Um, my opinion, even a dollar is too much to be making money off of this. And there are plenty of ways to get paid. According to court documents in South Carolina, participants pay $200,000 to have their animals fight against a top dog. Another fighting dog won over $50,000. The owner of a champion dog can make even more money on semen, stud fees, and puppies. Many of them are drug traffickers because they have to fund gambling of, of these dogs. And these dogs are very expensive. They're going to have weapons. And if we haven't already arrested them, um, the chances are we will arrest them in another arena. Inside this home, officers find several guns. The homeowner declined to speak with CNN. Federal agents pack up and head to the next house. We're about 20 minutes out. They say there's about 12 dogs. Dog fighting became a felony at the federal level back in 2007. The maximum sentence a suspect can face is five years in federal prison. Meanwhile, for the animals, experts say that some dogs are too aggressive to rehabilitate, but others can be adopted and get a second chance at life. Isabel Rosales, CNN, Atlanta.
amazing story. Just ahead, a story that can't be called anything else but a miracle. A man trapped in his car for almost a week, unable to move or call for help, was rescued by sheer luck when two fishermen happened to randomly spot his car in a distance. The story of his incredible rescue, next. Tonight, a miraculous story of survival. A man was trapped in his truck for nearly a week, unable to move after an accident. He was on the brink of death. No one could see or hear him. Then a phenomenal thing happened. Seen as Athena Jones has a story. Quite frankly, it's, it's a miracle that he's alive. A Christmas miracle in Porter County, Indiana. Matt Ream found alive in his mangled truck six days after a crash that left him trapped. The wreckage, under a bridge of Interstate 94, a mile east of the town of Portage, was not visible from the road. Fortunately for Reem, Mario Garcia and his son-in-law, Nevardo de la Torre, were out scouting locations for fishing near a creek Tuesday when they spotted something shiny. It caught our curiosity. I looked inside and moved the white airbag, and uh, he, th there was a body in there. And uh, I went to touch it, and he turned around. And that just, it, it almost killed me there because it, it was kind of shocking. But uh, he was alive and he was very happy to see us. The badly injured man later telling authorities he had not been able to reach his cell phone to call for help. He mentioned he had been there for since last Wednesday. So uh, he's been there for a while. And he says uh, he tried yelling and screaming, but nobody would hear him. It was just quiet, just the sound of the water. Authorities closed the westbound lanes of I-94 near the site Tuesday afternoon while crews worked to free Reem. He was transported to the hospital by helicopter. It is not clear what caused the crash, but police say it appears Reem was driving westbound and ran off the road, traveling along the grass shoulder before going airborne down into the creek, where authorities believe his car rolled over several times and landed under the bridge, where it was partially submerged. I don't see any way somebody could have seen him. It was just a, a, a very fortunate that we've seen through the cracks of the woods the shiny of the, of the wreck and curiosity that took us over there. This is a miracle that this gentleman is alive today and that these two um, gentlemen just happen to be on that creek today. Another lucky break? Relatively mild weather. Temperatures in Porter County since December 21st ran from a high of 59 degrees to a low of 29. We've been lucky enough here this Christmas season that our temperatures have been, as you all know, above normal. Um, so that was working in this individual's favor. It's cold tonight, and uh, I don't believe that he would have made it through, through, the, through the night tonight. Reem has several broken bones and injuries to his legs that could require surgery, according to his labor union, and a GoFundMe page set up to help with the cost of his recovery. We're glad we, we got him the help he needed. A happy ending made possible by two men who were in the right place at the right time. For me, it was the first time going there. So, like, it was just, uh, we were put there for a reason. A miracle. And Athena Jones is with me now. So how's the man doing tonight? Well, he's in critical condition in the hospital. He's asking for privacy for himself, for his family, for his friends, while he processes everything he went through since last Wednesday, nearly a week, as we've pointed out. He says he knows he has a story to tell, but he's not ready to tell it yet. When he is, he will. Until then, he wanted to share this message. The message is no matter how tough things are, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, sometimes in the least expected way. All right, well, wishing the best of luck to him and happy healing. All right, Athena, thank you so much. Still ahead, the Detroit Pistons made NBA history last night, just not the way they hoped. Details next.
So it's difficult for a two-win season to get much worse, but the NBA's Detroit Pistons are now owners of the longest single-season losing streak in league history. After their 118-112 to defeat by the Brooklyn Nets last night, their losing streak is now at 27 straight games. And frankly, it could actually get worse. One more loss, and they tie the NBA's overall record losing streak, which was over two seasons, 28 games. That next game tomorrow night against the Boston Celtics, the best team in history and the best team in the NBA <laughs> right now. And the game is in Boston. All right. Our favorite senior data reporter is with me now to talk about just how bad this all is. Harriet, you know, I, I feel badly for the Pistons right now that Bless they're having a season like this. But the fact of the matter is Detroit's got some experience with record losing. They absolutely do. You know, beyond the Pistons, think about the Lions, who a few years ago won exactly zero games in a season. Or talk about the Detroit Tigers, who about 20 years ago lost an American League record amount of games. So this has been a century that has been awful for Detroit. And as I said during that intro, Bless their hearts. One thing that's interesting is the Pistons historically are actually a pretty good team. They've got, what, three NBA titles, which is, you know, ranks them like fifth or sixth in the all-time list of titles. But it's gotten so bad for them in terms of streaks with teams who never win. Mm. Where, does, where do they fall? Yeah, I mean, look, if you were a Cardinal fan, if you have been following uh, the Arizona Cardinals since they were the St. Louis Cardinals, since they were the Chicago Cardinals, they haven't won an NFL title since 1947. Uh, Charlie Trippi returned to punt for a touchdown in that championship game. I believe he's the only player ever to return to punt for a touchdown in a Super Bowl or NFL championship game. Or think about the Cleveland Guardians, who haven't won a World Series since 1948. Or how about the Sacramento Kings, who the last time they won an NBA title back in the early 1950s, they were known as the Rochester Royals. If I get to bring up the Rochester Royals during a segment, you know we're talking about a really long time ago. Rochester Royals, some obscure stuff right there. All right, I am a Red Sox fan. They had an incredible drought. Not lately. They've yeah. won four World Series this century. And your Bills, man, not doing well. No, no. The Buffalo Bills have never won a Super Bowl, but I swear this is going to be the year, John. The Bills have never won a Super Bowl, but I have real faith. Uh, and, you know, you mentioned your Boston Red Sox. You know, when I was a kid, it was the Red Sox, the curse of the Bambino. They didn't win a World Series title between 1908 and 2003. They finally broke it in 2004, right? So we're used to losing. Our hearts go out to those fine folks in Detroit, and maybe they'll win a game soon enough. Maybe even tomorrow night. Maybe. Here's pulling for Detroit. All right. That is a tough story, Harry. One of the worst sports stories of the year. But we can't end the program like that. So here are some of the best sports stories of the year. Here's Tom Foreman. In sports, the best NFL team was the Kansas City Chiefs, who edged out the Philadelphia Eagles in a barn burner. This was just two points shy of tying the highest scoring Super Bowl ever. And the Rihanna halftime show. Are you kidding me? She did it pregnant. I think this game, it represented a takeover. With Tom Brady retiring, this was now Patrick Mahomes' league. Breaking news right now, a serious injury on the field during the Buffalo Bills-Cincinnati Bengals game. The best comeback from the worst moment? Give that to Buffalo's DeMar Hamlin, who suffered a terrifying cardiac arrest at the start of the year, but was back on the field this fall. I, I didn't think it was possible. In baseball, the Arizona Diamondbacks wriggled into the World Series only to be run over by the Texas Rangers in five games. 
The Texas Rangers are really, really good. When it's not a competitive World Series, it's not as much fun. In the NBA, Laker LeBron James made the best basket, the one that took him past Kareem, Carl, Kobe, and Michael to grab the all-time scoring record. The oldest player in the league, he's in his 21st season. That's crazy. But the best team was the Denver Nuggets, who cooled off the Miami Heat to take home the Mile High City's first NBA trophy. Nikola Jokic, star of the show, you know, he became the finals MVP. And in the NHL, the Vegas Golden Knights slayed the Florida Panthers to seize the holy grail of hockey, the Stanley Cup. Makes you think about all those kids who grow up skating on the frozen ponds around Las Vegas and in Florida. College sports saw the undefeated Georgia Bulldogs grab a second straight football championship. Go dogs. I know, the frozen ponds in Las Vegas. <laughs> How many times were you said. in that segment, John? Was that your segment or Tom's? Not nearly enough. They cut out some of my best stuff there. But thankfully, Tom Foreman will have much more. Harriet, and thank you very much. You can catch all the best, all the worst this Friday at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific with Tom Foreman right here on CNN. The news continues, so The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.